0: Thank you very much, Mark. The topic that I've chosen for this morning is engaging techno-culture. Engaging techno-culture. All the really interesting questions about technology are essentially anthropological questions. They have to do with our understanding of what it is to be human. Creativity and innovation are part and parcel of our human nature. And our thinking about technology must begin with a sense of gratitude to God for the liberating effects on human life of a multitude of tools, gadgets, and machines. Men and women, and especially women across the world, have been relieved of household drudgery and dangerous working conditions. They're no longer bound passively to the outworking of the natural order. Diseases that were once debilitating or fatal are increasingly subject to treatment or control. Life expectancy has increased dramatically in the past century. And the peoples, cultures, and religions of the world are more readily accessible, since communication is no longer bound by time or space, as are whole new ranges of foods, ideas, products, and lifestyles. However, technology in late modernity has ceased to be simply about tools, devices, and machines. Fabricated environments have become our natural habitats. As technologies become integrated into every detail of our lives, it's through technology that we increasingly express who we are and what we aspire to become. And this rapidly changing technological landscape generates a need for constant stimulation. It doesn't matter what the content of the stimulation is, but stepping off the treadmill, staying still long enough to ponder in silence what things we should attend to and what we should regard as mere distraction, this has become an existential challenge. Technology, in other words, has become our mode of being in the world. And the world is seen not as a home in which humans dwell along with other creatures and in responsive dependence on the Creator, but rather the world is simply an amoral mechanism What the German philosopher Martin Heidegger called a standing reserve of material resources, awaiting exploitation in the projects of the human will. And with the advent of the internet and virtual reality, the world itself is regarded as only one amongst many others at the disposal of the human will. Infinitely malleable, and it's only constrained by financial considerations. Now cultural anthropologists and those who have cross-cultural missionary experience will immediately recognize this as an all-encompassing worldview. What has changed compared to traditional tool-making cultures is a uniquely manipulative relation to the world and an anthropocentric self-understanding. The world itself is evacuated of all meanings, As the old adage goes to the man with a hammer, everything is now a nail. It's not that we decide what kind of society we want and then go about developing the technologies that we need to bring it about, but rather we select things for doing just because the technology for doing them is available. In this techno-cultural worldview, life is fragmented into a discrete set of problems. And the problems are solved through the application of techniques. Techniques which can potentially be mastered by anybody with suitable training. Rationality is reduced to instrumental reasoning. The tendency to reduce all of life to a technical logic is seen in everything from religious practices such as prayer and evangelism or church growth to sex and to organizational management. In the modern technological environment, we seem to have lost the possibility of encountering something beyond ourselves which might discipline and order our human making and our human willing. Technology has become self-legitimating, carrying its own imperative. The more problems technology spawns, the more technology we need to solve them. Looking back on the heady days of the Manhattan Project, which was a secret US project during the latter part of the Second World War to develop an atomic weapon, Robert Oppenheimer, the director of the Manhattan Project, remarked a decade later in his autobiography, I quote, when you see something that's technically sweet, you go ahead and you do it, and you argue about what to do about it only after you've had your technical success. And that's the way it was with the atomic bomb, end of quote. Similarly, another physicist, Freeman Dyson, comments, I quote, nuclear explosives have a glitter more seductive than gold to those who play around with them. To command nature to release in a pint pot the energy that fuels the stars, to lift by pure thought a million tons of rock into the sky, these are exercises of the human will that produce an illusion of illimitable power, end of quote. This combination of profound creativity with moral indifference, intellectual passion with personal and national ambition, these evoke the biblical concept of idolatry and the ancient myth of the Tower of Babel. The Holocaust was only possible as a conscious project in a culture that had elevated technical reasoning above everything that is distinctively human. Therefore, we need a reflexive understanding of technologies that is recognizing that they emerge from social, political, and economic contexts in terms of their design and deployment, and they impact those contexts in turn. They are therefore therefore never culturally, morally, or politically neutral. Alex Krotowski of the Oxford Internet Institute has observed that we seem to forget that the web is a network that is entirely human produced and primarily created by people who live in a small area of Northern California. So it's simply a myth that decisions made by computers are more accurate than those made by people. The creators of computer algorithms are also humans, with all their foibles and prejudices, and some propriety algorithms like the ones used by Google and Twitter or Facebook, are intentionally biased to produce results that benefit the company more than the user. Computerized trading between big banks played a large role in the financial crisis of 2008. More recent examples from the US include the use of algorithms to grade teachers or to decide whether prisoners should be granted parole or not. The effect in both these cases is to punish the poor simply for being poor and we, in turn, are shaped by the technologies that we use. Take video games, for instance. A cybernetic loop is set up between the human and the machine, a loop that allows each to be changed by the other. The player plays the game, and the game plays the player. Children learn fast reaction times, which may stand them in good stead in later life when driving cars, for example, or that may become unnecessary soon with driverless vehicles. But many of the most popular games promote a romantic conception of violence, equating violence with power and success. Exposure to simulated violence can desensitize, lowering inhibitions, making it easier to commit violence in the real world. Though one is not killing real people, one is getting used to the idea of killing. And it's a short step from this to the extensive use of pilotless drones, where war itself has now become a video game on a much larger scale. So human agents are responsible not only for the outcomes of their actions and for their uses of technology, but they're also responsible for how the technology itself is allowed to shape their conduct, their attitudes, and their institutions. If the whole cultural realm becomes subordinate to technology, then there's no other basis than the instrumental rationality which it encourages on which to criticize it, to evaluate it, to decide how to deploy it, or when to restrict it. So let me suggest three questions that we need to ask of any given technology. Three questions. First, what human capacities does this technology enlarge and what capacities does it diminish or impair? What human capacities does it enlarge and what capacities does it diminish or impair? Take the ubiquitous smartphone, for example. This, like all technology, starts as an enormously helpful accessory, expanding our ability to communicate with people anywhere and at any time through texts and social media. But it quickly and surreptitiously takes control of our lives. A third of American teenagers are connected to a device within five minutes of waking up. Most teenagers send 100 texts a day. 80% sleep with their phones. 44% do not unplug ever, even in religious services or when playing a sport or exercising. Texting and being constantly online not only shapes the content of our conversations, but they shape who we are. And nowhere as profoundly as our capacity for empathy. Sherry Turkle is a social psychologist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She spent her academic life researching the way that we interact with computers and cellular phones. In Turkel's most recent book which is called Reclaiming Conversation, she cites studies that show a 40 percent decline in the markers for empathy amongst American university students in the past 20 years, most of it within the past 10 years. Researchers link constant online life with both a loss of empathy and a diminished capacity for solitude and self-reflection. A 2015 Pew Research study reported that younger users of mobile phones stand out prominently when it comes to using their phones for two purposes in particular, to avoid boredom and to avoid people around them. So connectedness has replaced intimacy. In Turkle's words, and I quote, we hide from each other, even as we are constantly connected to each other. End of quote. In face-to-face interaction, people ask for things that computers never do. With people, things go best if you pay close attention and know how to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Real people demand responses to what they're feeling. Empathy is not merely about giving someone information or helping them find a support group. It's about staying long enough for someone to believe that you really want to know how they feel, not that you want to tell them what you would do in their circumstance. Such empathy requires time, patience, and emotional discipline. So we have the paradox of being silenced by our communication technologies. It all adds up to what Turkle calls a flight from conversation, at least from conversation that is open-ended and spontaneous, conversation in which we play with ideas, conversations in which we allow ourselves to be fully present to the other and fully vulnerable. And yet, these are the conversations in which the creative collaborations of education and business thrive. The lack of empathy amongst young people is troubling because the inability to feel the pain of others stifles moral outrage and the pursuit of social justice. And there is a lot of research that indicates that people use social media not so much to learn about others, especially those who inhabit alternative worldviews or cultural lifestyles, but rather to reinforce their own viewpoints. And machine algorithms reinforce this tendency by delivering information that simply reflects our own biases. So people are unable to navigate the offline public space where they have to interact with strangers. It is this that adds to what the eminent sociologist Zygmunt Bauman has recently called liquid fear. That is that diffuse and inchoate fear that stems from uncertainty and the inability to trust others. So we need to be more intentional about the use of our phones We need to create spaces in our lives, in our workplaces, for those non-technology-led conversations, and for those moments of solitude in which our humanness is nurtured. And this is the ancient biblical principle of the Sabbath, isn't it? The second question that I suggest we ask about technology is this who are empowered by a given technology and who are made more vulnerable. Who are empowered by a given technology and who are made more vulnerable. However many sabbaths or sabbaticals we may take from our online presence, we cannot escape the invasive presence of commercial marketing. Have you noticed how corporate advertisers invade public spaces to assault our senses with unsolicited messages? And their reach has been vastly extended by seductive, attention-grabbing technologies. These not only distract us from attending to those around us, but they also inhibit critical thinking. When it comes to our private spaces, the big cats of the internet industry mine and store our personal data in staggering quantities. They use it to customize our searches and to choose the ads that we see. They often cooperate with governments in data mining, in routine surveillance and censorship. Every time we link to an app, we give away some details about ourselves. We happily and willingly help to create the greatest surveillance system ever imagined. And in the process we become what the social philosopher Shields Deleuze calls individuals, to denote entities comprised of multiple parcels of data that can be bought, sold and traded in the marketplace. The individual is an aggregate of recorded preferences, histories, and tastes. Even democratic governments do not need judicial warrants anymore to obtain all our secrets. What I was thinking or buying three months ago, or where I was and with whom I was talking, these are all permanently recorded in the devices that make up The developing Internet of Things. The digital age also makes possible dragnet surveillance of whole communities. So we need to think more critically about how we are giving up our hard-won political rights of privacy or free speech in exchange for speed and convenience. We should be asserting collectively our right to know about the algorithms that reflect our data back to us, as well as how vulnerable peoples are being targeted. The novelist and philosopher Iris Murdoch once observed that man is the animal that makes pictures of himself and then comes to resemble those pictures. It's now commonplace to use machine metaphors especially drawn from computers to describe the human. Thus everything that is distinctively human, such as empathy, creativity, social relationships, worship, storytelling, humor, hope, these are marginalized in the new techno-narratives. The prospect is entertained amongst many scientists and technologists of a future in which machines will either replace humans entirely or be so integrated into human bodies that the latter become post humans or transhumans. I ask whose aspirations do such research goals serve? Who is funding this kind of research? The Nobel uh, Laureate in Economics, Paul Krugman, wrote a few years ago in the New York Times, I quote, smart machines may make higher GDP possible, but they will also reduce the demand for people, including smart people. So we could be looking at a society that grows ever richer, but in which all the gains in wealth accrue to whoever owns the robots, end of quote. And as authority is ceded more and more to machines, the abilities and expertise of professional workers atrophy. This process of de-skilling is similar to what factory workers in the first industrial age experienced. Much of human work is reduced to tending machines. Nicholas Carr has pointed out that physicians, pilots, and other professionals routinely navigate unexpected dangers with great ingenuity. Even in our daily routines, we perform feats of perception and skill that lie beyond the capacity of the sharpest computers, and yet we tend to denigrate ourselves in the face of robots and high-speed computers. In our quest to redeem technology, we could learn from Carr's proposal of a human-centered approach to automation. Instead of first considering the capabilities of computers and then assigning to a human operator whatever is left over, in human-centered automation, the talents of people take precedence over computers. Instead of supplanting human judgments with machine decision-making, He suggests that systems be designed to keep the human operator in what engineers call the decision loop. That is the continuing process of action, feedback and judgment making. So software plays an essential role, but a secondary or subsidiary one. The third question to be asked about technology. How are the benefits and the risks of technology distributed? How are the benefits and the risks or the costs of technology distributed? For justice demands that those who benefit most from a given technology, they should be the people who also bear the greatest risks. But take nuclear power, for example. Justice demands that those whose homes, those who benefit most from nuclear power, should also be those whose homes are most exposed to the risk of radioactive contamination. But that is not where nuclear power stations are sited, nor where the long-lived toxic waste is dumped. Those who benefit least from the technology are the ones who bear the greatest risks. Similarly with GM Foods, owned by giant agribusinesses and rich local farmers. Now, certainly we need better seeds and agricultural techniques. But the alleviation of famine and rural poverty has much more to do with land reform, cooperative ownership of technology, and the purchasing power of the poor. Rising national food productivity often coexists with rising malnutrition. So the introduction of new technologies in societies with grave disparities of income and backed up by aggressive modern marketing techniques can unwittingly become instruments of human exploitation rather than of human participation and stewardship. And that is why technology can never be a substitute for imaginative and courageous political leadership. Finally, a theological critique will always expose the aspiration of technoculture to a spurious autonomy. It's only when technology is seen as a servant of a higher human vision that it can become truly a liberating instrument. So the challenge is not to renounce human creativity nor to forego technological making. Rather, it is to insist that this creative activity be nourished by the love of God, the love of neighbor, and by the love of the world for the sake of God and neighbor. Thank you.